Hi, I'm Jamie Gallo. And I'm Andrew Learn, and we're part of the Racial Justice Focus Area at Novus Think Tank. Here's a little bio about our interviewee today. Viet Tenwin is a professor of American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. Beyond this, he is a cultural critic and author of many insightful books discussing Asian American narratives, including The Committed and The Sympathizer, which won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 2016. Today, we look forward to hearing his insights on the history of Asian American narratives, as well as how we can move forward from the recent increase in anti-Asian hate crimes. Hi there. Hello. <laughs> Welcome. Hey, Jamie. Hey, Andrew. Hi. Yes, this is um, one of my partners in my um, folks group, Andrew. Hi. Nice meeting you. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, first of all, for coming, for sharing your time with yeah, us. No um, how, do you, how do you dye your hair during this pandemic, Andrew? <laughs> I'm going to that. Yeah, looks, looks great. There's barely any roots showing. Yeah. Yeah, recent change, recent change. <laughs> I did it once. It was great, but you know, really labor intensive. It is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You risk losing your hair. <laughs> not, with one, not with doing it once, but I'm sure if you no. did it like, for 10 years, it could be a problem. True, or if you leave it on for too long, then, <laughs> then sometimes your hair just breaks away. <laughs> um, Andrew, is there anything that we need to discuss before? Um, I feel like if Professor, if you're ready, we can just jump right into questions. Absolutely. Here at Brain Juice, we're always curious about how a person's personal life inspires them in their professional life. We've given our audience a little bit of background about you and your work, but could you speak a little more about the intersection of your experience as a Vietnamese immigrant and a scholar in American studies and ethnicity? Well, actually, I call myself a Vietnamese refugee. That's an important distinction between being a refugee and an immigrant. And uh, it's actually pretty fundamental to my work as a scholar. You know, uh, so I was born in Vietnam, came to the United States as a refugee from the war in Vietnam at a young age. I was four years old. And, uh, you know, like many other people of my, of my experience in my generation, the refugee uh, dimension of what my family and I went through was, was difficult. And it was also, you know, to a certain degree traumatic, um, not to over-exaggerate the trauma, but, you know, all of us have our own particular traumas to work through. That was, that was mine to see the, the intense kind of efforts of, of labor that my parents had to undergo, um, you know, to establish themselves in this country and to rebuild their lives after the war. And, you know, that would have, you know, emotional consequences for, for our family because my parents were working so much, they didn't have a whole lot of time to spend with their, with their children. And that turned me into a reader and eventually a writer because I took solace in the library and in literature and uh, decided from an early age that maybe writing would be something that I would be interested in. And then, you know, to the extent that I became a scholar, much of my scholarly work emerges out of this nexus of um, experiences, both in terms of being obsessed with the, uh, the Vietnam War that shaped my family's history, but then also with the question of being Asian American, you know, as a refugee in the United States, I certainly felt myself to be Vietnamese, but also eventually a part of a collective Asian American experience as well, which was tied to both the domestic experiences of racial difference and racial formation in this country, but also to the long history of American wars in Asia that have brought so many Asians here to this country. So this eventually drove me to doing my first book on uh, Asian American literature. Um, it's a very direct expression of my concerns with being an Asian American and my belief that, that 
literature and culture and art was inseparable from larger issues, larger you know issues of history and warfare and and racism and so on. Um, and so that, that brings us up to the present, basically, you know, because I'm still doing this kind of work, um, both connecting Asian American issues to warfare and colonization and, and uh, to domestic racism, but also thinking about how how my own work as a as a novelist and a fiction writer in general can also deal with these issues as well. Awesome, thank you. Um, well, talking about your work and your books, in your book, The Sympathizer, you explore how America-centric and um, American media dictates our view of Asian countries. And how does the media's portrayal of Asia affect patterns of violence against Asian Americans in your eyes? I think that the United States, like um, other Western countries, has some very deeply held views about Asia or the Orient, that they, these views go back quite a long time. There's a certain pattern of, uh, of views that, you know, Edward Said has characterized as being Orientalist, uh, meaning that Western views of, of Asia and of Asians oftentimes see them in a bifurcated fashion that suit Western interests and Western prejudices, oftentimes seeing Asians as being collectivist, as being uh, corrupt, as being both highly sophisticated in terms of their capacities for intelligence and technology and so on, uh, but also being really dangerous as a result of these things as well. So this leads to a very variety of different ways by which you know, the United States has tended to interpret different Asian populations and Asian countries in, in, in different ways, uh, depending on the circumstances, but which are still tied under this, uh, these broader generalizations about who Asians are. So for example, now, you know, there's a lot of um, anxiety about China as being a, th a threat to the United States. And of course, there's a lot of denial that this has anything to do with race or racism and so on. But I think it does, you know, this, this perception of China as being uh, sneaky, as being prone to, to espionage, to thievery, that China is using every tactic, legal and illegal, to, to compete with the United States. These are all kinds of images that are, you know, uh, deeply embedded in this Orientalist history. And it's also extended to Asians within the United States. So the perceptions of China and the Chinese are, have a direct ramification on Chinese Americans, Chinese immigrants, and anybody who looks like them, which is a lot of people who are not Chinese, um, people such as myself. And so, you know, it's, in, it's, it's difficult to, to talk about um, Western ideas about Asia without also talking about Western and American ideas of Asian immigrants and Asian Americans. And so let's talk about China as a military threat, for example, because the language of China as an economic threat is also tied to this fear that China is mobilizing, arming itself, using all this technology in order to position itself as a uh, military competitor to the United States, starting first and foremost um, in Southeast Asia and in, uh, in with, with Taiwan and with Hong Kong. Uh, the implication is that these are all staging grounds for eventually for China to become a truly global military and political and economic competitor with the United States. So there's always this lurking idea that, that uh, any kind of uh, initial competition that Asians offer will eventually lead to Asians completely taking over. That's the idea of the Asian invasion. You see that with China, but also domestically, of course, in a seemingly more neutral context, Asian American students or, or Asian American labor in the United States. If we give Asian Americans any kind of an opportunity, they'll maximize it and then they'll eventually take over 
Um, so initially, you know, with Asian Americans, for example, in education, the fact that Asian American students are stereotypically perceived to be really intelligent and competitive and all of that is initially a good thing because we want these Asian American students in our schools and our campuses, unlike these black and brown students who are just not as smart, not as disciplined, etc. So, you know, the fact that Asian American students can succeed is testimony both to their native intelligence, but also to the meritocratic possibilities of the United States, which black and brown people can't take advantage of because of their supposedly cultural inferiority. Uh, but of course, once Asian Americans reach a certain number, they become too threatening. And then they threaten to take over the educational system. And then they then we have to find other ways to circumvent their, 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 their superhuman abilities that set them apart from normal, quote unquote, normal and average, basically white people. So, you know, that, that I think is the current climate in which we're living, in which it's, it's, it's impossible to separate, again, the perceptions of, of uh, Asians as good competitors veering into dangerous threat overseas from what's happening domestically. And of course, there is quite a bit of uh, hysteria right now about this threat that Asians offer. Yeah, as far as scaling it down um, to more day-to-day -day conversations concerning Asia, and I know you've talked about this in our class, but how do you think um, the coronavirus and rhetoric like Kung Flu and China virus um, contribute to the anti-Asian violence that we've seen? I think there's obviously a direct connection. Um, and the reason why there's a direct connection is because when someone says Kung Flu or China virus, they don't have to explain what they're talking about. And they don't have to explain what they're talking about because they're tapping into a deep well of anti-Asian, anti-Chinese feeling that has been that have been here within the United States since the, the 19th century and the arrival of Chinese immigrants. But they're also tapping into an even deeper well of anti-Asian feeling and suspicions about Asians that go way back beyond the 19th century. So that you know, in, in the perception of the West, Asia has always been a source of uh, danger. Um, it's been a source of attraction as well, but on the dangerous side, it's always been a source of potential contamination because of disease, because of vice, because of sin of various kinds, ranging from sex to drugs, and then to, and then to things like infectious uh, diseases. So we have to remember that in, just in the context of the United States, uh, it, it, in the 19th century, Chinatowns were, were often burned down because of the perception that they were hotbeds of, of vice, but then also of, contamin of contamination, especially through disease and hygiene. So Kung Flu, China virus taps immediately into this history that Asian, that Americans, I think, are, are, are rather aware of. They may not be aware of the specific kinds of incidents that I'm talking about, but they're aware of this perception that Asians are, are, are Asians and places where Asians cluster are places of potential infection. Um, this is true, like let's say if you're an, you're an Asian American student, you're going to school, you, this is a very canonical Asian American experience, you bring your lunch that your parents have lovingly packed for you, and it contains these foods from your particular culture, which are awesome foods. But then of course, in the perception of non-Asian students, this food, is alien, it's it's smelly, it's stinky, all these all these kinds of things. So you know, children have already internalized these kinds of perceptions. And so it's all waiting to be tapped into by anybody who wants to invoke these these racial slurs. Um, and so you can say Kung Flu and, and people automatically make that connection to Kung Fu and to the Asian as an alien and Asian as a threat. And there we have it. 
Another part of, I guess, our cultural dialogue about Asia is what we see um, in Hollywood. And we saw that you stated in the NPR interview that Hollywood is the unofficial ministry of propaganda for the Pentagon. Um, and so we just wanted to ask, do you see any link in how historical anti-Asian narratives in Hollywood specifically also perpetuate this time, trend of violence? Well, you know, Hollywood is the unofficial ministry of propaganda, but it's also stereotypically a very liberal place. I mean, there are obviously conservatives in Hollywood and so on, but Hollywood imagines itself to be liberal. It's always there for you know good causes and for for helping people. And and Hollywood movies and TV shows uh, can be constructed as as uh, uh, representations that can draw our attention to people in, in crisis or places in crisis. We have a lot of that kind of history. So how is it possible for Hollywood to be this kind of liberal bastion and yet be a place of anti-Asian violence? And I think it's because the the place of Asians, again, in the American imagination from which Hollywood is not exempt has been, has been as, a, as, a, as a source of, of being an alien, um, that Asians are not seen as a part of the United States, whether they happen to be outside of the United States or inside the United States as Asian Americans. And because they're alien and incomprehensible, uh, they can also be subjected to everything ranging from humor and mockery to violence. Um, so I don't think it's, it's an accident that historically the place of, of Asians in the Hollywood imagination has been to be either a source of, of comfort, which is to say that Asians are there in order to serve white people as their live with their cooks, their servants, and so on, their houseboys, but also as their sexual servants, as prostitutes, girlfriends, mistresses, and the like. Uh, but then all the other place that, that Asian Americans occupy in this Hollywood imagination is as a threat that has to be put down either through through mockery or through violence. And that I see it as a spectrum. Um, so, you know, historically Asians, when they appear in Hollywood movies are there to be made fun of. Uh, and that this kind of anti-Asian humor, number one is excused as being harmless. It's just a joke. But if the only way that Asian Americans appear or Asians in the Hollywood imagination is to be made fun of, then it's not just a joke. It's, it's the constant, uh, it's a constant source. It's a repetition of, of mockery. Uh, and another key, key way to figure out that this is, is not just a joke is that these jokes are not born out of understanding or of love. Uh, and they're certainly not jokes that are born out of trying to criticize people who are more powerful, but they're, they're, they're malicious jokes that are aimed downwards at people who are less powerful. So I don't have a problem with jokes about Asians or Asian culture. I mean, we can turn to comedians who have done that well, people like Margaret Cho and Russell Peters. They make jokes about Asian accents, about Asian eating habits, all these kinds of things, but you know they're doing it out of a place of love and understanding, right? That's different than mocking Asians for dog eating, for example. Um, it's not that we can't make jokes about dog eating because in fact, there are some Asians in Asia who eat dogs. But if we're making these jokes maliciously by saying, oh, did your mom pack you dog for lunch? We know that's not born out of a sense of love and understanding. And so the, the line from there to anti-Asian violence is I think very clear. It's not that everybody who makes an anti-Asian joke is going to go out and punch somebody in the face. But when someone says Kung flu, China virus and so on, that kind of a mocking uh, joke is directly tied to these other mocking jokes that are a part of the Hollywood imagination. 
and they in fact eventually do lead to violence as we do as we see now in the present moment so that's the domestic manifestation of that that there's always been a history of of uh, physical acts of abuse against asians that's the extreme end of the mocking of asian americans or asian immigrants and then the last thing to point out here is that a lot of the American perception of Asians comes about not just from domestic contact with Asian immigrants and Asian Americans, but from foreign contact through colonization and warfare that the United States has done in various kinds of Asian countries, which in my mind is the ultimate act of anti-Asian violence because these American wars in Asia have have inarguably been, been conducted through uh, racist rhetoric. We just have to look at anti-Japanese propaganda from World War II or the behavior of American soldiers in Korea and, and Vietnam, just to cite two countries, to acknowledge that racism has always been present in the way that the US military has engaged with Asian countries. And so when you are in fact deploying a military machine that will kill hundreds of thousands of Asians, uh, the dehumanization of Asian life through anti-Asian rhetoric, uh, both implicit in American policy, but explicit in the way that American soldiers have, have interacted with Asians, then those attitudes rebound directly into the United States, but they also come out of the United States as well. So there's a very circular relationship between anti-Asian violence through American warfare and anti-Asian violence domestically through Hollywood and through other forms of popular culture. I guess on the note of some more domestic events, um, the mass shooting in Georgia, Georgia has been one of many examples of violence against Asian Americans in, in the United States. And I wanted to ask, how have you seen this violence intersect with the cultural values of masculinity in America? So masculinity and violence in the United States, in American culture has always been intertwined. We, we go back to the founding mythologies of, uh, of the United States about uh, uh, arriving in the new world, these settlers from Europe arriving in the new world, seeing what they would call uh, an untouched wilderness out there inhabited only by wildlife and by natives. Uh, and you realize that the settler spirit that is a part of this mythology is completely tied in with violent conquest. You know, both the violent conquest of an, of animals, but also the violent conquest of native peoples as well, who are also being seen as being inhuman or or less than human, and that this 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 colonizing frontier kind of imagination that was deeply violent is absolutely tied with with masculinity. That the uh, the imagination that Americans have constructed for themselves about who they are in this new world has been deeply gendered, that there's been a place that women are supposed to occupy, there's a place that men are supposed to occupy, men are supposed to conquer and women are supposed to support them. And what men are supposed to conquer is not just a wilderness, but a feminized wilderness, a wilderness that's there to be taken, there to be exploited, there to be plowed. <laughs> you can talk extensively about these kinds of, of metaphors, but certainly, in that imagination, the, the gun um, and other forms of, uh, of other tools and forms of violence are absolutely crucial to the taming of the, of the wilderness and its inhabitants. And so I think we see a direct line, a direct genealogy from, the, from this, what, from what was happening from the 1600s onwards to what, what's happening today, that the fetishization of the second amendment and the right to bear weapons of all kinds 
is tied to this kind of frontier imagination that you need these, these weapons, both to fight off tyranny from the government and from the British, but also to put down dangerous natives uh, and non-white peoples as well. So the image of American masculinity today, white American masculinity in particular, as being something that can be um, demonstrated through weapons and that it's a right for this kind of American masculinity to have these kinds of weapons is tied to, com completely tied to the, this kind of founding colonizing uh, mythology that we have. I wanted to ask, because I saw your article called This Is My Rifle, This Is My Gun, about the attack on six Sikh Americans in the early 2010s. I wanted to, do you see any like different, like major like contrasts or similarities between like masculinity, masculinity and violence in that case and this case today? I think that in both of these cases, what we see is a combination of a fear of the other and specifically an Asian other in this case, whether we're talking about Sikh Americans or East Asian looking Americans in the case of Georgia, combined with the accessibility to you know, weapons that can, that can do mass shootings, which are an outcome of our, of our history of, of weapons and violence, but also of our history of, of, a, max, of a masculinity that often be, can become very, very toxic. So you know, there's an intersection of many different things that are happening in these two kinds of shootings. The one other issue for the Georgia shootings is that there is an element of sex and gender that's explicit, whereas that, that was not necessarily explicit in the Sikh Gurdwara shootings that might've been present, but in the, the, the issue that seemed to be prominent there was a question of, of racial and religious othering. Whereas with the Georgia shootings, uh, the, the shooter has you know, been explicit about saying that it's tied to his own sexual desires and repressions and so on, and not about race. But of course, none of these things can be separated from, from the other. Um, so again, I think this nexus of, of, uh, of, of fears and desires that combine race, gender, sexuality, masculinity, and violent conquest has always been there lurking in the American character and the American psychology. Not all of them are necessarily activated at once, but, but usually a lot of them are intertwined together at any one incident when we're talking about these kinds of mass shootings. And just to add on to that, why do you think it's so important to acknowledge the intersection of race and gender, for example, in the Atlanta mass shootings, but as you said, something that we've seen historically in many cases? Well, I think because in most of these kinds of, of, of in most of the kinds of, things that we're talking about in American history and in contemporary American issues. When we're talking about something, for example, like race, we may be foregrounding that issue. You know, when a black man is being shot by the police, it's like, well, definitely it's about race. But it's also impossible to separate something like that from these other kinds of issues because a black man being shot uh, is also a man, not just a, a black person. And you know, in, in a kind of a, of a racist imagination that, see, that automatically sees black men or anybody who looks like a black man, including black boys, as a, as a threat, as, a, as an enormous physical threat that has to be put down uh, with violence uh, up to including the point of shooting that is tied to the question of gender, of masculinity, of the sexual threat that black men have historically posed in this kind of racist, white supremacist imagination. 
Um, so, you know, that it's, it's, it's impossible, I think, to, to really isolate any of these kinds of conditions from the other. Um, because again, if we go back to sort of these orig, originary or, you know, orig, origin moments in American history, um, from, from which we can draw these direct connections to the present, you know, race, gender, sexuality, labor exploitation, uh, all of these have always worked in concert uh, uh, with the other. Are there any narratives specifically about Asian females or Asian female stereotypes that you think have been overlooked or are directly contributing to this violence but people have yet to acknowledge? I think for Asian Americans, the, 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 the objectification and the fetishization of Asian and Asian American women is a very obvious thing. So for us, it's not overlooked when we talk about something like the Atlanta shootings, that it's obvious to us for, or for to many Asian Americans that this was a, a shooting driven um, ex certainly explicitly by, by sexual desire and sexual fears and sexual phobias, but that these are completely inseparable from the way that these, uh, these sexual elements have, have been completely intertwined with the way that Asian women spe specifically have been fetishized and hypersexualized. Now, I think that for other Americans, um, they may overlook this, mostly because they're in a state of denial, because I think it would be hard to, for, for, for us to talk about the place of Asian women in the American imagination and not concede that Asian women have usually been sexualized in one way or another, sometimes hypersexualized in the, in the figure of the prostitute or the sexual worker or the sexually submissive partner or sexualized in the servile fashion in terms of the Asian woman or Asian American woman as being an ideal partner in the sense that she is submissive and complicit and or compliant. Um, but I think, again, a lot of Americans might be in denial about that because there's a reflexive tendency for some Americans to say, well, it has nothing to do with, with race or it has nothing to do with, with sexuality. So even if that, that stereotype might be there in their, in their minds, they might also wanna de deny it at the same time. So that when it came time to talking about the Atlanta shootings, for example, there, there have been quite a few pundits who have said, well, let's, the shooter said it was about sex. He didn't say it was about race. So therefore <laughs> they're not connected. And so let's not racialize this experience when in fact, again, for, for many Asian Americans that, that, that undertow of simultaneous racialization and sexualization is always present. Another trend that we've seen that we wanted to ask you about um, is that with many of these crimes, we've seen that they've been committed often by young people against Asian elders. And we were just wondering if you saw any correlation there as far as age. I think it's, a, it's certainly a distressing um, phenomenon that's happening right now. and. I think that uh, I'm not sure what the exact answer is to this, um, except that older Asian people are obviously, you know, vulnerable targets. They're 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 uh, they're they're just easy objects of assault. People think they can get away with this, um, but maybe there's there's a kind of a phobic reaction as well uh, to older Asian people. Uh, you know, they, they should be objects of care and, and, of, and of veneration and, and respect for anybody, but certainly for, for a lot of Asian Americans as well that's embedded in, in many different Asian cultures. Um, and so when, it, when we talk about things like, you know, uh, racism and sexism and, and, and violence, these kinds of impulses are, are, are deeply emotional. They come out of a tangle 
of, uh, of impulses within people. Um, and so, you know, that, that kind of, a, that kind of, of, of hatred is not necessarily logical. It can be very impulsive. And, you know, some, somebody who should become an object, someone who should be an object or, you know, of, of veneration and respect can then just simply, it can simply be reversed into something that somebody that needs to be put down. Um, this kind of love-hate dynamic has always been a part of, of, of racism and sexism, misogyny, homophobia, and so on. We see it happening in different kinds of, of dynamics where the person who, who uh, we love in one moment is then the person that we hate in the next because they inspire some kind of uh, fear and revulsion within us. So that's my best attempt to, to psychologically analyze why the older Asian people are being targeted. Thank you for your insight. Um, I wanted to switch gears a little bit. And on a more uplifting note, what do you feel like that you've seen has been like the most meaningful form of allyship one can engage in pertaining to racial justice? You know, I think that um, when we look at things like social media in the current context, it can be really dispiriting because there's a, there's, there are some people in all communities who are not keen on allyship. You know, I think it's their, their, their first impulse is to, to say, well, look what happened to us. Um, and then you, you didn't support us. So why should we support you? And so on. Um, that again, that happens in all communities uh, and there's phobia and there's prejudice and there's racism in all communities. So it's not simply, you know, white people who are conducting anti-Asian violence, but you see black people doing anti-Asian violence, but you also see Asian people <laughs> engaging in anti-black sentiments and prejudices and discrimination as well. So I think it's important to acknowledge all these kinds of things uh, because what racism does is that it damages people and it encourages people to um, internalize racist feelings so that even if they themselves are the object of racism, they can be racist or prejudicial towards other people because that's how racism operates. Everybody's targeted by racism and just in different ways. And so it, it's difficult for some people um, and maybe for many people at different times to understand how it is that they themselves have been internally divided by, by racism. So the, the issue of allyship and solidarity becomes really crucial because it's, it's something that needs to be constantly repeated. It needs to be something that constantly has to be modeled. And that's partly because racism is, is cyclical and perpetual. So right now, anti-Asian violence is, at, is, is, is rising. We don't know if it's peaking. And it, it, maybe it wasn't as foregrounded in people's minds a year or two ago, but if we look at the long course of Asian American history, it's always there and it's always resurgent. So we always need to have solidarity and, a lot, and allyship for Asian Americans who have been targets of anti-Asian violence at different times in history, and it has to be repeated and it has to be redone. And likewise, Asian Americans have been um, oftentimes been vocal and uh, hardworking in their efforts to promote allyship and solidarity with other populations of color in this country as well. But that oftentimes has been, uh, that labor and that, that speech of allyship and solidarity oftentimes has not been heard or has been forgotten. And here we have to say that, when, you know, sometimes when people say, well, when, when, when have Asian Americans spoken out in, in support of, of other peoples of color, like black people, for example, I mean, you can, you, we can point to that kind of history specific people in Asian Americans history, specific activists who have done this. 
in specific organizations that have done this, and they're doing it today. The issue is not that, that Asian Americans don't speak out or that other populations don't speak out. It's that we're silenced. And it's in the interests of, uh, of racism to make sure that different populations don't get to hear from other populations. And that's because collectively, people of color and other minoritized populations don't own the means of production and don't own the means of representation. So we can, we can talk as much as we want, but if we can't amplify our voices, they can't be heard. And we can't amplify our voices because we don't own Hollywood, for example, or we don't own the newspaper industry and so on and so forth. So it's important to keep on speaking and to keep on speaking out uh, simply because we have to in order to try to make our voices heard at all through whatever media that we have and to continually demonstrate that these voices exist. And on the flip side, you know, when it comes to black support for, for Asian Americans, for example, there, there's been quite a bit of black support for Asian Americans in this time, ranging from, you know, leaders like, you know, uh, uh, Reverend William Barber and Reverend Raphael Warnock giving speeches at, you know, at, in support of Asian Americans and rallies in Georgia, to celebrities from you know Steph Curry to Rihanna participating in an anti participating in a march against anti-Asian violence and numerous other kinds of, of incidents like this. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar writing in the Hollywood Reporter, I believe, saying, "Hey, you know Hollywood bears a lot of responsibility for anti-Asian violence." So we need to be aware of that and to you know to con continue repeating these kinds of things to make sure that people in different communities are aware that other communities have in fact been speaking out and supporting them. Thank you. And then I guess like touching on social media specifically, I know you like talked a little bit about it earlier, but what do you think about the effectiveness on activism um, on that platform? And then do you have any thoughts on like performative activism? Cause I know that's something that has kind of arisen like especially in this last year. I think the reason why, you know, social media becomes important is, as I mentioned, that for a lot of people, they don't have access to the means of production and representation. You know, you're a teenager, all you have is your iPhone. Right? So, but the iPhone through social media can become enormously powerful. And I think that's why social, you know, the performance of politics and the organization of politics on social media is actually generally speaking, a positive thing, because it is, even though social media is owned by corporations like Twitter and Instagram and so on, uh, that people have been able to use that platform to get around uh, gatekeeping and to build their own kinds of broadcasting um, networks and mechanisms. So that's something, that's an advantage that gets around this question of, um, of you know, people of color not owning the means of production and representation. Now, that being said, social media activism can be crucial in terms of elevating uh, certain kinds of issues, right? And bringing it to the forefront of people's consciousness. And that's not to be dismissed, but that, uh, that is not the same obviously as physical activism, getting, putting bodies in the street for marches and for rallies and for you know, staffing activist organizations and grassroots organizations who still need people to do the work and not just tweet or, 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 and so on. So I do this, I mean, like I tweet and I do Instagram and all that kind of thing. And I say, Hey, it's great. You know, this got like 30,000 likes or something like that. And maybe there's a smidgen of social consciousness raising as a result of that. And, and, and collectively speaking, that again, can be really, really crucial, but you know, I'm also involved in, you know, other enterprises that I think are really crucial ranging from teaching, to writing fiction, to writing op-eds, to working with my own organizations as well. So it's beholden on all of us to do that kind of work. And that means that we have, we have to, each of us think 
individually about what we can do. Um, so not everybody obviously is a novelist or can write op-eds and so on, but everybody can join an organization of some kind. There's so many social justice organizations and community organizations that exist out there. So people actually have no excuses for getting involved. You know, If you know how to do social media, you know how to Google to find these kinds of organizations. And of course, all of us have the capacity to engage personally. So this idea that uh, you know, um, social media conversations are crucial, but they can't substitute for face-to-face -face conversations is true. You know, like we can have all this engagement with social media with total strangers, but we still have to go home and engage with our own families, with our own communities, and have you know sometimes difficult conversations face-to-face -face with the people in our lives. That's something that that's beholden on all of us as well. And the last issue of 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 you know so, uh, performativity, I guess, performative politics. That's that's hard to judge, right? Uh, because what's the you know what's where, where's the line between genuinely you know bearing yourself on social media and your beliefs versus performing for whatever re personal reasons people might have, ranging from vanity to to you know exploitation of profit. Um, sometimes it's obviously very clear that that is taking place when people you know when there's an unmasking of, of hypocrisy. But otherwise, there's a, there's a huge gray zone, and I feel it feel feel it myself personally. Because sometimes I, 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 you know, most of the time I, I, I mean, all the time I'm posting because I genuinely feel something on social media. But sometimes I think, well, maybe I shouldn't post it because then that would just ring hollow. And so there's an anxiety about not posting sometimes for me uh, because I don't want to be seen as engaging in sort of a, a shallow kind of a, a performativity. Um, but I think that kind of that that kind of reflexive consciousness is also maybe potentially important as well, because it makes me think, well, maybe I should just be doing something else. Maybe I should, I should just donate in money instead, for example, or maybe I should just reach out to people I know instead, rather than simply posting something on Twitter. Thank you for sharing your insights once again. Um, my last question for you um, personally is, are there any pieces of media you would recommend that could be helpful in dismantling anti-Asian stereotypes? Pieces of media? Pieces of media, also organizations, like you mentioned that earlier. You know, right now, the, the thing with media is that there is so much of it happening. Um, for better or for worse, you know, a lot of Asian Americans are concerned about anti-Asian violence, including Asian American celebrities. So now this is a little bit different than it was, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. We had Asian American celebrities back then, but maybe not uh, the same number, the same quantity that we have now, the same visibility that we have with certain uh, Asian American celebrities and people, other other people who work in the media. So you can look at uh, various kinds of efforts that are that are taking place. Um, you know, right now what's happening? What the the director Bao Nguyen, same last name as mine, just did a three minute video with GoFundMe, incorporating you know prominent Asian American celebrities from Ken Jeong to Olivia Munn and and also just a lot of other random people as well in a message about you know, stopping anti-Asian hate. And you see a lot of these kinds of media efforts taking place. And of course you see a lot of people uh, doing media interviews, for example, um, Daniel Day Kim doing it, Amanda Nguyen doing it, Ken Jeong as well. So there's actually a plethora of Asian American media out there right now or media featuring Asian Americans that, that you can point to. And I think it's a collective effort versus any kind of single one that becomes really, really, uh, really crucial here. And I think the, the, the issue of the collective is actually really important because there's different kinds of messages that are, being, that are being put out here. And so I think it's important to recognize that there's different approaches 
to this question of how Asian Americans should respond to anti-Asian violence. I think the, the mainstream message right now is that, hey, we're Americans, we belong, we've been here for a long time. Uh, don't do this to us. <laughs> and if you're an ally, speak up. And I think that this is obviously important, uh, but there's, there's a problematic dimension to that as well, which is that the question of Asian American belonging to the United States and uh, is one that Asian Americans have been trying to assert for a long, assert for a long time and for obvious reasons. But what does it mean to belong to a racist country? What does it mean to belong to an imperialist country? What does it mean to belong to a country that you know, is still engaging in colonization when we talk about indigenous peoples? All of these issues sort of are completely marginalized and overshadowed by foregrounding um, stop anti-Asian hate because we're Americans. So there, I think there has to be a way to get into these kinds of nuances and these kinds of complexities, especially for, for Asian Americans. If we're against anti-Asian hate, we have to be against hate period. It's not just about us. <laughs> so, and I think a lot of Asian Americans are not necessarily making that step, including in the social media campaigns. So I don't know if there's an ideal social media campaign that, that addresses all these kinds of things, but you know, one of the, the demands that, that Asian Americans have to, to have to take upon themselves is how to turn, you know, this, this, this rising political consciousness against anti-Asian hate into a rising political consciousness that connects anti-Asian hate to all the other forms of hatred that have been, you know, uh, that have existed throughout American history and still exist today. Now that's a level of social media consciousness raising that still needs to be to be under, undertaken. I've seen very little of that uh, working. I mean, most of what we see in terms of connections happening is connecting anti-Asian hate to anti-Black racism. It's a crucial step because a lot of people can't make that step. They don't see that connection. So that's the first step to get people to think about how anti-Asian hate is not an isolated phenomenon, but is part of a larger system. So there's still so much work to be done in terms of us being able to clearly sort of and concisely articulate such a complicated issue. So finally, we just have one more question as we approach the end of our time today. Um, and something that we like to ask at the end of our episodes is what are you grateful for today? I'm grateful that, you know, that even though we're living through a period of immense stress, which has been going on for, for a few years now, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to these questions of anti-Asian hatred, but also just in general, you know, racism, prejudice, violence, um, the suppression of peoples of color in the United States. The one thing I'm grateful for is that these moments, these, this, this time of, of stress over the last five, few years, I think has refined um, people's abilities to analyze what's going on and to make connections that like being put under stress has made people, you know, again, both try to reach out for, for solidarity and alliance, but also to encourage them to understand how, how all these different forms of subjugation, oppression, violence, marginalization that different communities are experiencing are in fact all connected. So our challenge is to connect all of them, not just to dwell on what happens to ourselves. And the fact that you know, the country feels like it's coming apart and that it's deeply divided and so on is deeply stressful and horrifying on the one hand. But on the other hand, that stress I think has encouraged people to think intersectionally and to think globally, um, including you know, people who have never been politically conscious before. And so I take hope from that, that uh, people are, are, are increasingly uh, conscious and willing to be even more conscious of our connections with each other.
thank you that's so much. That's all we have, yeah. yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. Glad you guys are doing this and look forward to hearing it when you guys have it all done. Absolutely. We'll send it over. Okay. Awesome. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Hi, this is TJ, and I hope you guys enjoyed that episode, and I hope that episode really took to your heart, and it did, if it did, I want to raise another issue that I feel is really relevant to the viewers of the show. Right now, Jerome Fink, who is currently employed by USC as a board member at the USC Lusk Center for Real Estate, is currently using his company to invest finance capital into Los Angeles' Chinatown and he's continuously gentrifying it and he's raising rents for the residents there. Um, and this is a larger part that's affecting a lot of working class Asian American communities where real estate investors, capitalists, continuously flood historic neighborhoods with their capital and gentrify it, making it inhospitable and unlivable for many of its residents who either lived there for decades and decades or just because of its very historicness and its affordability for a lot of working class people in Los Angeles. So if you're against this, please take action against USC. We're seeing this as a USC organization. Please do so. Thank you for your time and I love you all.